Welcome back to Bright and Sunny Alabama. I'm Sam, and I'm joined as always by Johnny Lemons, the minister to young adults. We like to start off with small talk, so that's what we'll do. So, John, how are you doing? How's your summer going now that summer's kind of in full swing? Doing well, man. I haven't really been called Johnny in a long time. Uh, used to be what I went by, but I feel like Johnny's more of a, goes well with like one syllable last names. I know a guy in college, his last name was literally D, D-E-E, and everybody just called him Johnny D. Mm-hmm. Um, Johnny Kirk. It's just, you know, it's just what people do. So I, when I hear Johnny though, like it takes me all the way back to Karate Kid because that was like the first Johnny that I knew like in pop culture or whatever when I went by that name. And of course he was the bad guy. So mm-hmm. uh, when I got to, I don't know, elementary school or middle school, I wanted to go by John instead of Johnny. Because it sounded more sophisticated, I guess. So More grown up with your glasses. Yeah, man. That's right. So I think people, you know, I, I know some guys that have, you know, they'll go by Charlie and decide, you know, in college to go by Charles or something like that, you know. So, yeah, I had that just that existential crisis earlier in my life, like elementary school was like, I'm going to be John now. So. Mm-hmm. And on a sophistic- sophistication in glasses, I remember you telling the story about mm-hmm. how you really wanted to be a pilot. So you walked up to the recruiter with your glasses on and said, I want to be yeah, I want, a pilot. Yeah, I wanted to look said, smart. Yeah, And they said, tough luck. That's right. They said, you can't be a pilot <laughs> because you have to have 2020 vision. I was mm-hmm. like, you crushed my dream. Yeah. And on that note, there's a new Top Gun coming out this summer. There right? is. So I, I imagine you have some summer plans around that. In just a few weeks. Yeah. So the problem is uh, it's coming out. It's been delayed for like a year. And, and it's coming out uh, right around the time I'm going on vacation. So there was talk at one time that I would do a birthday party at the movie theater, like a, you know, elementary school John, Johnny Lemons would. <laughs> and uh, I don't I don't know if that's going to happen because I'm going to be out of town. But maybe, maybe we can make that happen uh, once, once I get back. So, mm-hmm. yeah, a yeah, fun fact I learned about the first movie is after Tom Cruise meets the gal and they're riding in the elevator, mm-hmm. he meets her and she's wearing a ball cap. Mm-hmm. And the reason she's wearing a ball cap is that her hair is different because she had already been cast in something else and they had started filming. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was filmed later in the movie's production. So... Yeah, they, they actually threw a ball cap on so no one would know. When it was initially screened, um, the audiences did not think that their love story was developed enough. And so that scene and the scene right after it, or no, 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 I think the scene right before it were written in. So Yeah. And uh, talking about things we've been doing this summer, we've been doing this series for a while, for most of the summer, actually, for most of the spring. And we've had some pretty good, surprisingly good feedback on this series. I've heard some folks say that they really enjoyed the end of straight the end of straight out of context. Mm-hmm. Um, I've even heard some good things about this series. People saying, "Well, you know, it's basically it's caused me to think a little bit deeper and harder about my faith and the things that I've thought I've always believed." Um, and that's great. And if you're listening and you in that camp, let us know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it got me thinking. You know, do we have any Western heresies that we you know rely on or has kind of been embedded in our evangelicalism? So, what do you think, John? Are there any are there any things that maybe we've kind of held on to that? Perhaps we need to look again at in our larger consciousness as a culture or subculture. Yeah, you know. So we talked about um, Gnosticism in week one, and just the idea that having a soul that departs all this material stuff uh, or physical world, and um, the physical world's bad, this, that, and the other. Uh, how that's a heretical teaching, and and some of that has kind of bled into modern day Christian thinking of you know your average church person. Yeah. So like I think that feeds into. Uh, a little bit of what we're talking about today, and then also like 
left behind theology of, you know, mm-hmm. being raptured away and, and, you know, this world is just going to be utterly destroyed. Is that a heresy? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, the reason I, br- I brought it up or I was kind of alluding to that is, you know, maybe it's something we really need to think about. It was a big thing for a long time that people well, were and it still about is, yeah. And- yeah. So, and, and as a, um, you know, I think a lot of us, we heard it probably growing up in youth group or whatever, probably still hear it now. Of course, the Left Behind books were huge in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, so it became a popular theology rather quickly and rather expansively, but it's new. It's, it's, it's fairly new as an idea. Uh, when you look at the grand scheme of things, like it wasn't really developed as a theology until, I don't know, mid to late 1800s. It, it would have been completely unfamiliar to the earliest Christians. They would, you know, if they picked up left behind, they would have been like, what? I, you know, like it's, I think what they teach about or what the theology teaches about Jesus is correct, but I do think it's probably wrong about the end time end times kind of stuff. So I guess I would say it's heretical there. Um, but I also mm-hmm. would say, I don't know what the end times are going to be like. I don't know any of us know that. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know that we're meant to know that. And I just think it's just, I really think it's just based on a lot of misunderstanding of passages. Uh, for instance, the, there's one in Matthew, um, two men will be walking up a hill. One will be taken and one will be left. Uh, two women will be, you know, I think uh, grinding at the millstone or whatever. One will be taken and one will be left. And so that's been used to kind of proliferate this teaching of the rapture. Um, mm-hmm. The problem with that is Jesus prefaces that teaching with the phrase um, in those days, speaking in, of in the end times, in those days, it will be like in the days of Noah. One man will be taken, one will be left. One woman will be taken, one will be left. Well, the days of Noah were days of judgment, not days of rapture or whatever. So the analogy he's making, the people who were taken in the days of Noah were the people who were suffering from the judgment of God, not people who were being taken away to be delivered or whatever. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I would say yes. Like it just has a fundamental misunderstanding of biblical theology and biblical teaching. That doesn't mean there's not going to be a second coming. We're just talking about premillennial rapture. And there's a lot of people that believe that. I just, I just think it's not right and it's not what the earliest christians would have believed so mm-hmm. all i know is that there were a couple of moments growing up i was a late sleeper i always slept in even as a kid yes and i would wake up and my mom and my sisters and everyone else will have gone out to the store or whatever yes. else it was and a full panic would descend onto me and i would think oh shoot have they all been raptured and i'm left here alone uh it so is it is always on more than one occasion it is a great joke to play on people so yes mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but on the uh, the subject of heresy, why don't we just go ahead and well? Do you get think into... it's a heresy? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are certainly things that we have to reanalyze. Whether it's the Left Behind series or just other commonly held beliefs beliefs that we had that we have, um, and I think the Bible is pretty explicit in you know supporting the the physical embodiment and the value of the physical realm. So. You know, I don't know what the end time looks like, but I think the Bible is fairly clear that there will be a a new heaven and a new earth where things are made the way that they were intended to be by God in the first place. Mm-hmm. So all of the pieces between, you know, now and what that final looks like, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. I don't think the Bible or the biblical authors thought it was important enough to be recorded. Um, so, and, 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 you know, 
Yeah, the Bible uses the terminology of new heaven and new earth, but it's important to keep in mind, you know, Jesus's resurrected body wasn't a new body, right? It was mm -hmm. his body. It had the scars right. that he had. Our resurrected bodies, even though we're going to turn to dust, um, most of us at some point in time, you know, unless the second coming does happen in our lifetimes. Um, yeah, like we're going to have renewed bodies. We're not going to have new bodies. Um, and, and um, it, you know, I guess those terms are kind of used interchangeably. But the idea is that the earth and the heavens will be re renewed and um, reunified. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think just the misunderstanding of that is what led to the sort of left behind Schofield theology that got developed. Mm -hmm. Well, on that, let's uh, go ahead and move into today's episode, today's content. Um, hopefully, it'll be really interesting, give you some things to think about. I think, unlike some of our other episodes, this will probably apply to more of our listeners. Um, I, don't think, I think regardless of who you are, where you are, this will give you something to think about. And this also happens to be the fourth and final episode of season two, Holy Heresies, our podcast about the things we believe that we probably shouldn't believe. Mm -hmm. So these past couple of weeks, we've been talking about various Christian heresies as we've been reading through uh, the book Counterfeit, Counterfeit Christianity by Dr. Olson. And this episode is going to not only conclude this series, but all of season two. So if you've not listened to those, to all of season two, I encourage you to go back and do that. And we will hopefully be back for a season three. God willing, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We're planning on it. We'll talk more yeah. about that at the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. But uh, as a quick recap, how we got to where we are. Week one, we talked about Gnosticism. You briefly mentioned that earlier. Uh, week two, we talked about the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity and how thinking too hard can melt your face on that one. Yes. Uh, week three, last week, we talked about the authority of the Bible or changing the Bible. Uh, the official terms are Marcionism and Montanism. Go take a listen. If you have any questions, if there are anything, if there's anything you would like to think or talk more about and think through a little bit further, drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to talk with you and continue that conversation with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually had someone talk to me just this past week who said, "You and Sam keep saying to take you up on the offer for coffee or lunch or whatever. I need to do that." And I was like, "Yes, you do." So if you're mm -hmm. out there and you're listening and you're in the area, um, hit us up. We'd really, we'd really love to do that. We actually just had lunch with somebody today. So, mm -hmm. um, or if you're in Hawaii, uh, that you may not be local, but we will come <laughs> and take you out to lunch. We'll find a way. Yeah. Yeah. So. We'll figure it out. Um, so this week in our exploration of Christian heresies, we are going to discuss moralistic therapeutic deism. I realize this sounds very complicated and you're probably thinking that because it sounds so complicated, it certainly can't have anything to do with you, but we'll just have to wait, look and see as we continue through this episode. Yeah, and it is a big term, and it probably most people will be like, well, that means nothing to me. But if you just break it down, all that means is, you know, moralistic, be good, therapeutic, feel good, deism, you know, belief or religion. So it's moralistic, therapeutic, deism is basically be good, feel good, religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so compared with our past three weeks, this episode and this content will be a bit of a departure from the other one, other heresies. Because the origin of moralistic therapeutic deism, or can we just call it MTD? Or be, be uh, so, good, feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Be good, feel good, God things, um, is really much closer to our own place and time than the time of Jesus, surprisingly. But that doesn't make it any less dangerous. That doesn't mean that it has had less time to develop or any of those things. In fact, because MTD or moralistic therapeutic deism is often confused with genuine Christianity here in the now, and I bet there are people in our churches 
who are moralistic, therapeutic deists, mm-hmm. and they think they're Christian. Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't the time, I know we're talking heresies, but this isn't the time to start thinking about who might be a secret, moralistic, therapeutic deist. But the point is to waken you to see how close it is and how close it is to home by saying that it has taken up residence with a lot of people. In previous episodes, we've talked about the tentacles or um, vestiges that have survived, but these very much still live and still exist and have very much attached themselves to people that we know. And it's concerning because many people unknowingly have adopted this belief system without any awareness of it being an unbiblical alternative to true Christianity. Yeah. So MTD is described by Dr. Olson in his book is characterized by five broad tenets. And as you're listening, I want you to think or ask yourself, which one of these seem like a huge departure from Christian faith? First one, the belief in a God who exists and created the whole world and watches over life on earth. This is the first characteristic of MTD described by Dr. Olson. The second, the belief that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught by the Bible and other world religions. Belief that the central goal in life is to be happy and feel good about yourself or oneself or to live a good life. Four, the belief that God is not all that involved in your personal life except the times for when you really need God to resolve a problem. And five, the belief that if you're a good person in life, you get to go to heaven when you die. Yeah, and I think, you know, that kind of third one, the goal in life is to be happy and feel good. And that's kind of the the heart of what I was talking about earlier and it's really the heart of our culture I think is just the if it feels good do it be true to yourself whatever you know the problem with that is I mean like that's like that's kind of like our culture's end goal is uh be happy and um it's such a pervasive ideology I guess that we almost go to any ends in order to be happy whether it's you know consumerism to the extremes medication to the extreme extremes, uh, mm-hmm. substance abuse to the extremes. It's all because, uh, not all, but a lot of it can be traced to like people's unhappiness or just feeling like, why am I not happy? And, and there really hasn't been cultures in the history of the world that have been obsessed with happiness the way that we are. Now we'll say that doesn't mean like everything can be traced to that. You know, there are legitimate mental illnesses. There are legitimate diseases like alcoholism that, don't don't come out of that. But I do think just this sort of pervasiveness or prevalence of it in our society. I mean, there are more people in our society, in our culture, that are medicated for things than in other ones. I think, you know, uh, the, the ratio, I think, is bigger for us than other places. So I think that can be traced mm-hmm. to this a little bit as well. And, you know, when you look at it, not everything is something that feels good, right? Like not everything is something that is personally beneficial. Like if you have a loved one who has a disease or has special needs or things like that, like taking care of them and loving them is not going to feel good. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. if you have, I mean, getting married and having a family, you know, is it goes against everything sort of in our natural instinct. Our natural instinct is to like, do what I want to do. That's the cultural message. Do what feels good to you. Do what you want to do. Well, like having a family requires self-sacrifice and, and uh, you know, sacrificial love. And that doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always, it's not always something that like you want to do. And so that's where this as a belief system sort of falls, falls short. The idea, I mean, Jesus giving his life for you and I, um, giving up everything that 
you know, was central to his unity with God, that's, that doesn't fit into this sort of a worldview. Like why would, why would someone do that sort of thing? And especially why would someone do this sort of thing so that you wouldn't have to do it yourself is, is, you know, in your personal relationships is kind of a dilemma that I think MTD doesn't really answer as well, you know? So. Yeah. And I, I was recently reading an article probably from thriving marriages where I get daily updates on how to be a better spouse. And they said that there's, you know, there are a lot of people who get to a point in their life where they realize that my spouse doesn't fulfill my needs anymore. Right. And so then they go to, you know, through divorce because all of the things they were hoping their spouse could do for them, they realized, well, their spouse can't do or was never going to do or one of those other things. But like you said, marriage is one of those things that is, you know, opposite of what's best for me and what do I get out of it and what makes me happy? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes marriage involves a lot of giving and a lot of sacrifice and your mate isn't there to make you happy or please you you know, then at that point, they're no better than anything else that you would consume. Yeah. I mean, what happens when your spouse gets Parkinson's disease, right? Like mm-hmm. it will, if it doesn't feel good to me, then you just leave them. But like somehow, for some reason, we still as a culture believe, well, that would be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Even though we, we wholeheartedly believe in this, like do whatever feels good. Like we feel like someone leaving their partner because it's not beneficial to them anymore would be, would be something that's wrong, right? So there's even mm-hmm. like just hypocrisies with even that, within even that belief system. Yeah. I mean, it certainly seems to be a floating value system to Mm kind of hit whatever seems like it needs to. Right. And these five points that I gave, you know, Dr. Olson even admits that it's a very base skeletal outline, the basics of what would characterize. But hopefully what you've been able to gain from these characteristics is that MTD focuses on, quote, divinely underwritten personal happiness and interpersonal niceness. Mm -hmm. There's most certainly a prevalent emphasis on self rather than God and on emotion over truth. Followers of the system, air quotes, believe in an innate human goodness and kindness and believe life is about individual happiness and the actions which produce positive personal outcomes as what gives life meaning and purpose, much like we just talked about. Because moralistic therapeutic deism is very much a watered-down, feel-good, fake Christianity, it is therefore a radical pattern um, that you see motivated and defined by current culture more than a historic religious truth or a comprehensive and coherent Christian doctrine. So how would you like summarize that idea or illustrate that idea in 15 seconds? Oh, yeah. Well, that might be hard because we do a whole hour episode to explain yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, much like we were just talking about it, I think there's a history of Christian belief and practice to say, lay down one's life, that it's you involved with others, involved with God, and... Like you said, sometimes there's not going to be a supreme central happiness. Um, And I think that's why Christianity makes a distinction between like happiness and joy, right? You can be really miserable, but still experience joy in your life because you have the hope and the presence of Christ in your life, even if, you know, you might be going through something terrible. Um, Sometimes I think we truncate and mix the two of them. But moralistic therapeutic deism is all about the well, why do I need all of these other things when it's just not good for me? Or what if it doesn't make me happy? I should just go after what makes me happy, what's best for me. All of this in summary um, is what the long name basically means. Um, Relativized ethics and morals, what you think is good or what's good for you isn't necessarily good for me and what's good for me isn't necessarily good for you. The central thrust is being a good person or being good to one another. And the meaning of life is wrapped up in self-actualization or being the best form or person that you can be 
um, so that you can be happy and have the things that you want, have life the way that you want. But if we take a step further back and go to, I guess, the root of all of this, what do we get? And I think the moralistic therapeutic really builds, builds itself off of the deism, which is the base and the root, which gave the fertile ground for all of the rest of this to sprout off of it into moralistic therapeutic deism. And like many other things, deism is very different to a lot of different people, but we'll talk about the, the basics of it here. And it is a basic, basically it is belief in an impersonal God who is detached, remote, or uninvolved in the things of the world. Some popular metaphors that people will use to describe a deistic god are an absentee landlord, someone who rents you the space and you never hear from again or doesn't take care of anything. Or some people like the clockmaker idea, who created everything, put the clock together with all the pieces, the gears, and the functions, and then just steps away to let it run and doesn't interfere. And if you aren't familiar with deism, if this is the first time that you've heard it, it is as American as apple pie. So it really makes sense that this is a heresy that is very especially close to home for all of us. Yeah, it's probably something, you know, when the founding fathers of America refer to our creator and this, that, and the other, is probably more of a reference to this ideology than to what we would call Orthodox Christianity and um, very much a, a remnant, I guess, of the Enlightenment era, which I think you're going to get into. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so very much Enlightenment thing. Deism originated as a philosophical, religious kind of mishmash that arose across Europe during the Enlightenment, um, which is basically a, a name for, the, for a cultural revolution that happened among Europe's inter intellectuals who were really trying to rally against um, you know, various forms of authority and tradition. And they were really seeking new paths for knowledge based on reason alone. They were kind of sick of all of these religious wars that had been going on for so long between Catholics and Protestants, that they thought that the way forward would have to be an era of reason, where all things were based around reason, including religion. Could they figure out and put together a religion of reason? So among many of these intellectuals was a British lord who thought he could bring lasting peace to the world by replacing the present religions that they saw with a minimalist religion, which reasonable people could all agree. So he thought he found a couple of things in all religions that he could maintain and keep throughout everything else. One was a belief in a supreme deity that the deity ought to be worshipped. He also thought that virtue combined with piety um, is the chief part of worship of this deity, that people should repent of their sins, and that reward and punishment follow from the things that you do in your life. Now, this his initial exploration into a reasonable religion didn't really take root until much later when it finally found good footing and become a movement. One such follower was a guy named John Toland, and his name doesn't matter unless you want to look more deeply into it. But he published a book which proposed that there is nothing in the gospel which is mysterious nor contrary or above reason. For him, even divine revelation, as we talked about in our last episode, must be judged by reason, and anything um, that is beyond reason simply could not be essential to true religion. Matthew Tyndall, another guy, you could look him up if you wanted to, built on the first guy's work, to Toland, to say that there are no supernaturally revealed truths, and there certainly aren't supernatural beliefs. So anything that is supernatural 
anything that is beyond our way to comprehend or understand, you just have to throw it out. It's just not useful. It's not good for anything. So sort of the opposite of Gnosticism in that sense, it sounds like. like Yeah, certainly. So Gnosticism is a, about a secret knowledge or a special knowledge of things which have been revealed to only a very few set of people. And these and guys... And the natural is bad. Yeah, and the natural is bad. And these guys on the other side say, well, let's have something that is only available to everyone's intellect, everyone's ability to reason, and these things which we're going to gather from the natural world around us and the um, supernatural is bad. And the supernatural is bad and not useful, definitely, mm. because if you can't comprehend the Trinity, then there's no use in the Trinity, and perhaps the Trinity doesn't exist because you are unable to reason it. So Dr. Olson would say that basically what they did is they reduced Christianity to an ethical monotheism. So a belief in a single God based on ethics and value systems. So they ended up with a belief in a personal God who created and governs the world, who is best worshipped by living a good life according to intuitive knowledge of right and wrong. Even the Frenchman Voltaire would follow this line of thought to say that he believed in a God, but God was just simply impossible to know, so true worship is just trying to live a good and ethical life according to reason. In our last episode, much like you just said, John, about our founding, fa founding fathers, we talked about Thomas Jefferson and the way he would physically snip out anything from his Bibles um, that looked supernatural or beyond human ability basically reducing Jesus into some type of moral teacher. And we call it the Jefferson Bible, and it's on display, and you can see blocks of it cut out. Um, and he really just thought that you couldn't take anything supernatural, that Jesus just had to be a moral teacher. Thomas Jefferson, like many of our other founding fathers, were children of the Enlightenment, and such all end up being deists. We like to think they were Christians, but I honestly think to call them Christians is probably an overstatement of something much more complicated but Thomas Jefferson, who we know as a professed deist, pens many of these Enlightenment and deist ideals into one of his most famous documents, the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people will point to their belonging to uh, or membership in churches at the time and stuff and, and say, like, well, no, they were Christians. But I mean, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that, uh, you know, that their beliefs are orthodox or not. Um mm -hmm. There, there is some indication that some of them um, just utilized uh, their church membership the way you would utilize any cultural membership, really, just for you know personal personal gain or uh, political gain. I guess um, that's neither here nor there. Um, I, you know, I think the you know getting back to what we were talking about earlier, I think the question that MTD fail, fails to answer for me is what do you do when yeah you're faced with suffering, uh, particularly the suffering of a loved one. You know, if you have a kid that that acts up, that has behavioral issues or whatever, mm -hmm. like MTD doesn't, doesn't satisfy that. It would say, do what feels good. Um, and I think most of us would agree that morally there's an obligation. Uh, and, sometimes, and sometimes doing the moral thing is not what feels good. Doing the right thing does not always feel good. One of the things that Dr. Olson talked about um, in his book that I think can be traced to the rise of this this idea of thinking too, and you you started I think to to go there, Sam, but but around the time of the Enlightenment and this whole like pursuit of reason and you know common reason and that kind of thing, that kind of led to a shift away from sort of trust in institutions, um, trust in you know like it, before then it was sort of a you know the king was the king. 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, your leaders were just your leaders and, and there was no thought of, you know, replacing your leaders. That's just who they were and, and they were God-given or naturally given or whatever, you know, given by nature mm-hmm. or, or however you went. And the enlightenment and reason, um, and Dr. Olson talks about this, was was sort of the uh, the beginning of this idea of like, well, well, we have the power to shape that and we, our decisions should should lead to that. And so then leadership was less of a, um, you know, just sort of an assumed given and more of a like, well, we get to, we get to chart the way. Um, and that bled into religion as mm-hmm. well and still does to this day. So, yeah. And as Baptists, um, if you know your Baptist history, you'll know that there was definitely a, a large protest movement among Baptists in the colonies because you weren't allowed to practice anything that wasn't state religion. Um, and I think this idea of just going against the established powers was already prevalent at the time. So when we see things like the authors of the and signers of the Declaration of Independence talking about the innate right of humans under an authoritative God, we want to think that it's, oh, well, these are Christian things, but really, you know, they're products of their era and their time, and that is the enlightenment. And this is enlightenment thinking that we don't need a king anymore, and we can do it on our own, and we have the capability to rule ourselves if necessary. Um, so, it, you know, drastic change in cultural thought and societal thought and just, you know, a, a pure change in the trajectory of human history, in, at least in Europe at this point. Yeah, the and I think many people would say this today, that we're better off choosing our own way rather than having somebody else choose it for us, even if our way is destructive mm-hmm. and the king might have really good intentions for us. We just have a fundamental trust that we can decide that better than the king can, right? Or some authority mm-hmm. figure can. Um, and that's ingrained in us even from children. We oftentimes know or think that we know better than, than our parents. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, that seems to be sort of a vestige that came out of, came out of this idea and philosophy. Yeah. And even our current, and I don't want to linger too long on this, but you see it a lot, I think in the common sphere that we've moved beyond authority and tradition into reason. And now we've kind of moved into a new thing, um, which we would say is postmodern where it's a refocusing on, you know, still a rejection of traditional authority, mm-hmm. but more onto something else entirely. Uh, that would be an episode for another day. But mm-hmm. just, you know, vestiges of the enlightenment we see continuing to swerve and move through even our modern world. Mm-hmm. But post the founding fathers in the 18th century, where you see a lot of these things and, you know, deists being a big part of the world and the way the world was changing and the world was being shaped, particularly in Europe and the rest of the Western world. Uh, the movement really didn't go anywhere. It kind of, you know, sputtered around a little bit and disappeared. At least that's what people thought. I think in reality, what really happened is a lot of these ideas and notions really just melded into the fabric of American culture. And, you know, this this whole faith system we've been talking about or this belief system can certainly be attractive to a lot of people, especially those who may be looking for ways to comply, combine a belief in God with science as though they stand in opposition. They don't. There is a way to be a Christian and believe in science. It is possible. I do it. John does it too. (laughs) But you really see people gravitate toward toward deism as they seek to stand on the ideals and promote things like we just talked about, God-given rights of individuals, the inalienable rights given by the almighty creator. And of course, deism rears its head in the lives of people who profess or practice a religion which sees God as 
uninvolved in day-to-day life, all the while still punishing the wicked and forgiving anyone you know, who's sorry for having done the things that they had done. And you know, this doesn't have to be an explicit thought, but how many people live their lives this way as living with a very uninvolved God who's doing things somewhere else, but he's just not in my personal life. And what's most interesting, as Dr. Olson points out, is that few people who think of God in this way would call themselves anything other than Christian. However, their God, like we've talked about, is far removed from being the passionate, intimately involved, intervening, and relational God who died on the cross and rose from the dead. We might not normally make this connection, but MTD is certainly a very pharisaical kind of religion. Yeah, I don't mean that you know the, the Pharisees of Jesus' time were moralistic therapeutic deists, but the Pharisees were judged rightly as having put too much emphasis on the right, doing the right things um, and doing those things in a very certain way as to be pleasing to God. This sounds in a nutshell very much what MTD is. Trying to, yeah. by your own power, be good enough so that the God who has no interest in you otherwise might be okay enough with you being the best you can be and you being good to others as warrant to, as to warrant eternal life. And it also, I think there are whitewashed tombs in here somewhere. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Just the, you know, I think as Christians, we would say that there are dirty things about us that no matter how we try to clean ourselves or clean ourselves up, we can't change apart from God. And I think this pharisaical live by the law is try to do everything you can on the outside, hoping that it begins to make the things that you can't clean cleaner. Right. Yeah, and, I think uh, if anybody's wondering about it, I think that whitewashed tomes referenced by Jesus is in Mark chapter seven, which we talked about at the end of our straight out of, the, straight out of context series. He also t- he also says it's like a cup that's been cleaned on the outside but not on the inside, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's a good analogy. It's I actually wrote down something about the the Pharisees too when I was reading this. I just said, you know, I find it interesting that I think most of us would assume, you know, when thinking about the story of Jesus and the characters involved, we would be like, oh, the Pharisees are the bad guys, but we probably believe a, you know, if we hold to MTD at all, be good, feel good religion, then we are holding to sort of a extension or vestige or tentacle of, of Pharisaism because that's exactly what it was as you, as you said. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I find it interesting that, uh, that you saw that too, Sam. Mm-hmm. Another really interesting thing that I hadn't thought about when reading the chapter is that Dr. Olson takes a section to specifically talk about how every religion goes through phases or cycles, and that in the last stage of each religion, it moves into what he calls a folk religion, when the beliefs, traditions, intellectual engagement all devolve into individualistic, privatized spirituality that thrives on cliches like t-shirts, coffee mugs, popularized incorrect beliefs, individual feelings, and personal experiences. And of course, we outlined many of these t-shirt and coffee mug Bible quotes in our series straight out of context at the start of the season. But folk religion is what comes about when all the tenets, truths, historical relevance, community belief, and experiences are substituted for t-shirt gospel, if we can call it that. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with decorating your house with scripture or having things which remind you to pray or the joy that you have in God. The concern is that the true, right, orthodox observance of faith and life after Jesus has waned and is being replaced with something less alive. A live faith has nothing to do with the number of people who belong, the number of people who profess there is a God, because even demons profess the existence of God. That's that's what James tells us in James chapter two. But we should seek a faith that is alive and is excited about every word from the mouth of God and desperate to know and be like Jesus Christ. 
As a point of note, if you have trouble wrapping your head around the mystery of God or the supernatural events, such as Jesus being raised from the dead, difficulty rationalizing doesn't a deist make. It's when you deny them or reduce anything you can't understand to untrue or irrational or discard it completely that you begin to flirt with something less than our historical orthodox Christianity. Well said. So here's a a new thing we're doing this episode. Unlike our other episodes, John, we have some numbers to provide our listeners with to give them an idea of deism in our society. We have percentages. Mm. So according to the Cultural Research Center, 74% of Americans, 74 Almost three quarters, just about three quarters of all Americans, lean on some variation of agreement or practice with deism and or lean on it for some type of life guidance. These people side with the version of Christianity, which emphasizes, and that's an air quote, version of Christianity, which emphasizes self, emotion, being good rather than on God or objective truth. Here are some other statistics. Of those 74%, 95% don't consider success in life as consistent with obedience to God. 91 don't believe that people are born into sin and need to be saved by Jesus Christ. 88% get their truth, information, or moral guidance from places other than the Bible. 76% contend that people can earn a place in heaven based on being good. 75% of these people don't believe God is at all the basis for truth. 71% don't believe in the Bible is don't believe the Bible is true or reliable. And here's a really interesting one. An astounding 74% believe that believe in karma, which is in no way Christian whatsoever. What's surprising, people are definitely drawn to this worldview, this practice of moralistic therapeutic deism, and they are more likely to engage with biblical faith practices than they are to actually hold biblical beliefs. Mm. Is that crazy? So I mean, I'm not totally surprised, but... Yeah. Yeah, you would just think it would be the other, right? Maybe flip-flop but they are more likely to engage with faith practices than to actually believe their biblical beliefs. Meaning, people will still come to church and do the Christian things without actually believing the Christian things of traditional Christianity. You know, I think for a long time, it was probably safe to assume that if you went to church and did church things, you were probably a faithful Christian. But the information is pointing in the direction that attending church or doing churchy things really has no bearing on your beliefs. Yes, I think a lot of this too stems from just how easy we want life to be. Um, you know, Christianity is hard. Understanding the Bible is hard. And we're not saying it's not. Um, I think it's worth putting in the work to try to understand it better. If you're listening mm-hmm. to this podcast or you listen to Straight Out of Context, you might be already sort of in that in that boat. So kudos to you. Um, but I think, I think the reason why most people land into a belief system like this is because it's just easy to do. And you don't have to work out the, what are the problematic things in it like, what I like, what I mentioned earlier. What do I do when it, it doesn't feel good to love my family member or whatever? And I think it's just pervasive in our society, even after or even even past, you know, religious beliefs or whatever. I mean, you can look at relationships. Relationships are hard, man. You know, so mm-hmm. it, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of effort, and there may not always be payoff to have a relationship with someone. Um, is especially that expresses itself sexually. It's a lot easier to just be sexually promiscuous or mm-hmm. to look at porn rather than to just put it or go to a strip club or something rather than to put in the time to develop a relationship that may or may not have a sexual expression. You know, same thing with anything like, you know, any sort of discipline, eating, eating well, eating, eating, eating right, eating healthily um, or, you know, exercising to produce natural endorphins or whatever. 
um, it's just a lot easier to, to, you know, do something that's a shortcut or whatever. And I just think we're kind of hooked into that. We're almost addicted to that as a society. Um, and I think that leads to the, the longevity of a, of a belief system like this and also the attractiveness of it. certainly very attractive to find something that is you know quickly rewarding um right you know that is very gratifying immediately gratifying or that you can um, justify whatever you want to do with yeah yeah and i and i think living in the culture that the way we do you know be in the world but not of the world um can be very difficult and it often asks us to you know really knock our faiths against the truths of the world around us and you know perhaps this is probably a good place as any you know, as modern Christians, how much change are we really willing to accept in our faith beliefs and practices? I, I, you know, I don't want anyone to read more into this than what it is. It's just a rhetorical question, but I think it's something we have to think about, especially as we talk about a watered down faith. You know, just how many compromises we're willing to make to see our faith meet this cultural moment. You know, the fact of the matter is that our culture and the world we live in, everything which surrounds us is going to tell us to change. It's going to tell us to be different, that we can't believe certain things because they aren't rational. They seem unfair to particular groups or, you know, they just don't make sense or they're outdated or whatever it might be. Our culture and the world around us will never stop demanding that we surrender tenets of our faith. And those things will just get chipped away if we let them. If we ever find ourselves making too many compromises or changes because of the demands or whims of the world around us, then we will all end up eventually with the same kind of watered down, empty and meaningless faith, which hobbles around on as a mishmash of cobbled together beliefs, thoughts, and truths, but we need to fight the urge to recreate God in our own image. And I think whether you are just now beginning, you know, if, if your faith is just now becoming culturized or has been for a little bit, um, it reminds me of a book, and I think we can go back, and the book that I was thinking of is called Not a Fan. And the main idea of the book is that many people who say they're Christian are really just something akin to an enthusiastic admirer to Jesus. And I think in our watered-down faith, this is very much what it can look like, a watered-down Christian faith into something that's less than what it's supposed to be. The book says that enthusiastic admirers of Jesus are fans that want to be close enough to Jesus without him actually asking anything of them. They want to go to church, they want to do churchy things without actually having anything deeper than that. So are you an enthusiastic admirer of Jesus do you just want to be so close to Jesus and the church as to receive all the benefits, but not so close that it requires you to sacrifice your life or hold to hard tenets or beliefs or truths or supernatural truths that you can't maybe understand, but you know has been the tradition in the church for a very, very long time? Are you a fan of Jesus and his church in the same way you belong to your favorite college team or professional sports team? Are you just a fan or have you sacrificed your life and your goals to follow every word of Jesus and submit to him? even if there is no immediate goodness or happiness that comes out of it. I think the reality is that many of us who think we are genuine Christians who believe in God and go to a local church, own more than one Bible, and many other things really are flirting with a watered-down Jesus fandom. Mm -hmm. I know this to be true because, one, the Bible in Matthew 7 tells us there will be a day when we meet Jesus, and he'll tell us that he never really knew us in the first place. And two, 
I think we all know this to be true because we witness it with our own eyes. We've experientially witnessed firsthand that many people who call themselves Christians are nothing more than fans of Jesus. People who call themselves Jesus and don't believe that God is involved in their day-to-day life. People who call themselves Jesus and show up to church who just want the benefits of it. People who show up to church and just want to live a good, happy life and be good to one another and have people good to the, be good to them and have good things happen. Yeah, and I think that's probably something that stretches back a long, long time and a long, long way. It just takes different forms and shapes throughout the years mm-hmm. and centuries and things. But this is definitely something that that is an issue, you know, in Western civilization since, you know, probably since our founding fathers or at least since like the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some ways, Sam, that we can avoid all this? Well, I'm glad that you <laughs> asked. So Dr. Olson regularly gives anecdotes to a lot of these heresies in his book. And if you have not picked the book, I implore you to do it. It's been a lot of fun. But his number one to get out of MTD is, quote, Christians need to recover a sense of the countercultural nature of the gospel. The gospel is an offense to common sense and a scandal to ordinary reason, end quote. But it doesn't have to be an opponent to reason, just ordinary reason. That little piece is from me at the end. And of course, the only way to dive deeply into the fullness of this countercultural voice, which is the Bible, is to know the Bible through Bible study. Number two, listen to the voices of Christians outside of our Western American context. Although it seems like the world follows the drumbeat of American culture, it's, it's not true. Christians in South America, Africa, Asia, they have a lot to teach us and can help remind us of the Christ-centered life, despite what our culture keeps trying to convince us. You know, at one time, those used to be the places where we were sending missionaries, and now we're the mission field from those, those places, other places, yeah. which is just crazy. Um, and I think they have a lot to tell us about Orthodox Christianity. Number three, let's give our Christians a thicker, more challenging, stronger Christianity, which is God-centered and sees God rightfully as involved in the daily affairs of people. People can often worry too much that any mention of God's holiness, justice, wrath, or involvement in the world will scare off other people or worse. You know, the Bible is a strange world. And it's hard to comprehend God would care so much about us, but it's in the seeking of God that we find the depths of God. It's deep. It cries out deep. And on that note, just a little bit further, I think American culture honestly is starving for something of substance, something with real meat to it, something like the personal loving God who acts in history, paid the penalty of sin on our behalf so that we could spend now and eternity in the light and love of the eternal God without ever having to be good enough. Perhaps we just need to start really embracing it and living like people for whom this actually means something. So some concluding thoughts, check your practices, check your heart, and trust the history and traditions of the church as it relates to right faith. Be willing to think hard, linger long over your beliefs, and test everything in the community of Christ-centered, Bible-honoring Christians. Learn these heresies and shortcomings of real Christian faith and practice so you know what is right and wrong so that you might remove obstacles from your own faith and pursue Christ faithfully without any other additional hurdles. John, do you have any final thoughts as we look to wrap up the season and this episode and Man, no, everything that, else? That's, that's a wrap. That yeah. uh, This is a good way to close. I will say, yeah, I mean, if you want to talk any more, like we said at the open, hit us up for lunch or coffee or just to get together sometime. We'd love to follow up on that. Yeah. And if you're local and you say, I would love to read more of this or do more of this in a Bible study, you know, let us know. We'd love to 
I would love to talk more about this. This is my jam. And tell us what you'd like to hear for season three. I mean, we'll we'll come back to that in a few months. We'll take some, you know, a little bit of time off from doing this. But uh, we're kicking some ideas around. I'd love to know if anyone out there has something in particular they want us to talk about. You know, I've been thinking about doing a brief series on deconstruction because um, that's a big mm-hmm. hot topic right now. Uh, also, uh, wondering if anybody would be interested just in a podcast on how a series on how we got the Bible, like how the Bible came to be, because we've we've touched on that a number of times, just on what it is and the recognition of inspiration and things like that. So if that's something that would be of interest, um, let us know or let us know something that we haven't mentioned that you might like to hear more about. So, yeah. And on that, John, I think, as you said, I think this will wrap up this series and season two of our Young Adult Podcast. If you were listening, make sure to rate and review and share with your friends and family. I'd like to thank Ellen for the series logo. And as always our MVP, Patrick, for all of his audio production and all the rest of his hard work. Awesome, Patrick. Mm -hmm. We'd like to thank everyone who's been on this journey with us all season long. I hope it's been formative for you in the way it has been for us, and we will certainly see you next time in season three for the Young Adult Podcast. This is Sam and John signing off. Adios. Good, man. All right. That's a wrap. feel good about oneself or live a good life for that uh shoot i'm gonna have to <laughs> gonna have to redo that portion all right patrick rewind nice yeah i got to it and i was just straight reading it i'm like what uh, this doesn't make sense words are hard i can't hear you oh there you are all right so i would just start back from that section i don't know Patrick, if you're listening to this, somehow my microphone unplugged. Um, I think, too, you know, one of the things that... Um, oh, shoot. I, I lost my train of thought. Hold on, Patrick. <laughs> Patrick is going to earn his pay this week. Yes, you are. <laughs> what? I need to go to the bathroom really bad. <laughs> okay, yeah, nice. Yeah, sorry. No, I do, too, so that's fine. I'll hit pause. All right, Patrick, starting again. <laughs>